Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. How you doing? Good. All right. Well, let's get started by doing exactly what that song said and laying down some burdens before our God. So let's pray. God, we do want to come to you with all that we have. Some of us are coming in from really rough weeks, others from really good weeks. Some of us have done things that we regret. Some of us have done things we're proud of, but all of it, God, our whole lives, everything that we are, we want to lay it down before you. We don't want to carry the burdens we want you. We need you to do that, God. So we pray that as we come to your word, that you would show us your goodness and your grace and your love, that you would meet our deep needs, that you would speak to us right where we're at. We're open to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every day before leaving home, Adele Williams packs her purse with some foam from her couch cushions. She does this just in case later in the day she's hungry and needs a snack. Adele is hooked on eating furniture stuffing. She says that she goes through a throw pillow every week, and over the last 20 years, she has consumed seven couches. Adele's disorder is known as pica. It is the craving to eat non-food items, and it's more common than you might think. And the most frequent cravings for someone with pica are for things like dirt or clay, starch or chalk. Sometimes people will crave ashes or paper or soap, maybe even uh, shavings of metal. Sometimes this is the result of a mental health issue, but pica actually most commonly comes up with pregnant women, believe it or not. Because one of the, the causes of the disorder is a nutrient deficiency. So when someone's body doesn't have enough iron or zinc or other mineral, they, they start to crave, they start looking for sources of that in other places. The unfortunate part about the disorder is that eating dirt or chalk will not provide enough of those nutrients uh, for someone's body. And in the long run, eating non-food items is going to do more harm than good to their body. Their body is trying to meet its needs with something that was never meant to meet its needs. I think this is a great image of our spiritual condition. Every single one of us has incredible, deep heart needs. Needs for significance and security, for love, for acceptance. And they're not being met. And so our hearts go looking anywhere, everywhere, just to try and find something to make up for our spiritual nutrient deficiency. And one of the places where a lot of us tend to look to meet those needs is to our work. Today, we are continuing in our series on work called More Than a Paycheck. Around here, we believe that God cares about every area of our life, no matter what it is. For a lot of us, our lives are like TV dinner trays. We've got different segments for everything, our home life and our work life and our social life and our spiritual life, and they never really touch each other. But God is not just one compartment in our life. Uh, God is actually the whole tray. He's the one who holds all of it together. And so God doesn't want us to just have a spiritual life. He wants our entire life to be spiritual. And so that's why we're asking the question, what does God actually have to say about our work? We're doing this by looking at work through the story of the gospel, the Christian story, which can be told in four acts. These are the four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Say those with me. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
We started off the series a couple weeks ago talking about creation, how God made a good world. And the reason he gave us work is to draw out more and more goodness from the potential that God built into the world. It's an incredible gift, an incredible calling that he's given to us. Last week, we talked about the fall, how our sin and our selfishness has corrupted work. That no, because of that, no matter how hard we work, how much we labor and toil, there are still lots of times when it is fruitless and meaningless and difficult. Today, we're looking at the third act of the gospel, redemption, and this is what makes the gospel actually good news. This is where God himself shows up to rescue and to heal and to restore us from our brokenness. He brings about forgiveness and transformation through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, given the fact that redemption focuses on, focuses on Jesus, it might come as a surprise that we're actually going to be looking at a passage from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. If you are new to reading the Bible, it's going to help to know that the Bible is divided into two big sections. Now, the first section is the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. It's all the stuff that happened before Jesus shows up. The second big section is the New Testament, and that's everything that has to do with the life of Jesus and his earliest followers. So we're going to be looking at something in the Old Testament about 750 years before Jesus was born. But I think as we go along through this, you're going to see some of the connections to what Jesus does for us, because even before Jesus showed up, God was still in the business of rescuing and redeeming people. So we're going to learn something from here. Here's the context for this event. The kingdom of Israel is in an on and off again conflict with their northern neighbor, Aram. Uh, in some translations of the Bible, Aram is called by another name, Syria. And yes, it's the exact same region of the world that's been in the news the last few weeks. And this is the story from a man from that country named Naaman. And Naaman was not a worshiper of Israel's God. But a problem comes into his life that sets him on a, a search, looking for something to solve that problem. And it leads him to Israel. So I'm going to read the entire story here. It's about 19 verses long, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to comment on it. So let's read, starting in verse 1. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, 
and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Let's thank God for speaking to us in the Bible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's dig into the passage here. The first thing that I want you to see here is that work cannot meet your deepest needs. Work cannot meet your deepest needs. The very first verse of this chapter highlights all of Naaman's work accomplishments. It highlights his position. He is the commander of the army of the king of Aram. This is more than a military position, by the way. Uh, This would have been a a civic leadership kind of responsibility. He would have been a part of the king's cabinet, uh, a prime minister of sorts. He is part of governing the nation. Uh, The verse highlights his reputation. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded. It highlights his success. Uh, The Lord had given him victory. The, The verse highlights his character. He was a valiant soldier. Naaman is a great guy. He's had a highly successful career. His resume is stacked. Life has gone pretty well for him. But the verse ends, he had leprosy. He had leprosy. The word leprosy in the Bible is used to cover a lot of different skin conditions. So we don't know exactly what Naaman's condition was, but the symptoms might have included anything from skin discoloration, sores, uh, ulcers, nerve damage, uh, disfigured fingers, disfigured facial features. Whatever the symptoms were, though, getting leprosy, especially in that day, would have turned Naaman's life completely upside down. It would have raised some of the biggest questions you can ask, questions about death. I mean, imagine what the experience would be like to have this happen to you. Your skin starts to go pale and, and you get sores that don't heal and you're numb and, and everybody knows. Everybody knows that you're gonna die. And, and Naaman, a warrior, would have been keenly aware of this, but when your own skin starts to look like a corpse while you're still alive, it, it makes you face your mortality head on. Uh, health and youth, they're, they're fleeting. Leprosy also came with a strong social stigma. Uh, People with leprosy were excluded from the community. They were cut off even from their closest relationships. And so Naaman, this pillar of the community, this man who has this this central position, is going to be kicked out of that. He's going to lose that. 
And more than that, in those days, if you got a disease, but especially if you got leprosy, you assumed that that meant that the gods were angry at you, that you had done something to get on their bad side and they were against you. You had to do something to fix it. Now to us as modern people, we know about germs and so on. That might sound illogical or superstitious or something, but, but don't we all kind of do that? Like something unexpected, some tragedy happens in your life. You're bound to at least have the thought, like, did I do something wrong? Like, is God mad at me or is, did I get on his bad side? Yeah, you ever been there? It probably wasn't leprosy that did it, but some life situation that made you ask those big questions. What do I do about the fact that I, I am gonna die? How do I maintain meaningful relationships when things threaten to blow that apart? Where do I actually stand with God? These are the most important questions in life. They get at our deepest needs. The questions, obviously, they, they shook Naaman because he's, he's open to all sorts of suggestions at this point. At verse two and three, they have him talking to this little slave girl. Can, can you imagine that? The, the secretary of defense taking advice from a 10-year-old girl about a mysterious holy man in some other country. Like, this guy is really, really desperate. And some of you, you know what that's like. I mean, maybe you're there at that point in your life right now. You're asking these big questions and you are suddenly opened up to possibilities that you used to think were kind of crazy, like, God or a relationship with Jesus and you're wondering if that's what you need. If that's you, we're, we're so glad that you're here, that, that you can come to this place to explore those questions. We want to be that kind of community where people can ask those things and wrestle with those things and search. And so we're, we're glad that you're here even today. What's interesting is Naaman's instinctive response is to, to try to meet those deep needs by, by using the same solutions he always has in his work life. That, that he goes to the same resources that made him successful in his career. So he starts to leverage his connections. The first person he goes to is the king to get a letter of recommendation. He, he gathers his financial resources, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. That's 200 pounds of gold, 750 pounds of silver. That this gift would have numbered up into the millions of dollars. He uses his position, his reputation to open doors, to get a hearing with the king of Israel. He wants to use his abilities and his ability to get things done, to accomplish things. It says, verse 13, he was prepared to do something great to earn his healing. In our work, these are the sorts of things that solve problems, that get things done. In a lot of problems, these are the exact resources that are needed. But not every problem is solved this way. Certainly not our biggest problems. But for Naaman, this way of solving problems had been so effective in the past, he didn't really know any other way to, to seek a solution. Now, you and I, we, we don't need to be the stereotypical mover and shaker, the guy with the connections or the, the, the money or the resources to still turn to our work to try to get it to meet needs it could never meet. Now, Bruce Springsteen, he was right when he said, everybody's got a hungry heart. We, we all look for different ways to satisfy that hunger. Some of us, we, we look to pleasure, what makes us feel good. I mean, sex and food and uh, leisure and travel, entertainment, even drugs. So some of us, we look to other people, our relationships to meet those deep needs, our friends, our family, romance. But a lot of us, we, we look to productivity to do that, to satisfy our hearts. And when that happens, that is when work becomes something more than work. The, the Bible has a term for this. The term is idolatry, which might sound like a, a strange word to use because most of us are not bowing down to literal idols, statues of gods. 
We're not doing it outwardly, but there is an inward idolatry that can happen. Here's the bigger definition of idolatry. It is using something other than God to meet our deepest needs. Using something other than God to meet your deepest needs. How do I know if I'm significant? Well, because I perform. That's, that's how I know. How do I know I'm going to be safe and secure? Because I, I work really, really hard to make sure of that. How do I know I'm going to get respect and esteem from people? Because I'm, I'm good at what I do. Work is a good, incredible gift. It's a good thing, but it was never meant to be the source of these things. How do you know, though, if you're actually doing this, if you're turning to your work to meet needs it was never meant to meet? Let let me give you a few diagnostic questions to ask yourself about this. Here's the first one. Are you too busy? Are you too busy? It it used to be that when you said, hey, how are you doing to someone? The standard response was, I'm fine. How are you? Even if they weren't fine. That's just what you say, right? I now find myself, and I hear other people doing this. When you say, how are you doing? Someone will say, oh, you know, pretty busy, pretty, you know, just a lot going on. Like that's the standard response. That's our default mode. Why does our work demand so much of our time? I think it might be because we're looking to it to to meet our deepest needs and we feel like we can't say no, otherwise those needs might not be met. Here's a second question. Are you riding the roller coaster? You're riding the roller coaster. Anytime you look at something to meet deep needs, heart needs, it is gonna dominate your emotional life. So when work's going well, you're on top of the world. And when it's going poorly, you are crushed. Now, it's appropriate to care about your work. Remember, it is a good thing that God assigned us to do. We should be invested in it. So it's okay to feel happy or sad about how things are going. But when it dominates your mood, when it can plunge you into despair, make you feel like life is not worth living, then we're probably looking to work to do more than it can possibly do for us. Third question, have you become demanding angry or impatient because of your work? What what would happen if someone came up behind you and put their hands over your mouth and your nose and you can no longer breathe? How would you respond to that? Or, Or let's say you hadn't eaten for two weeks and you finally had a meal in front of you and someone just yanked it away. How would you respond? You would probably struggle. You'd probably get defensive. You would probably demand to have it back. Suddenly time would slow down and it would feel like it was taking forever to get what you need. It was there in your grasp and now you no longer have it and you're feeling impatient. Do you ever have that sort of reaction when someone hinders your work? When someone interrupts you, when someone demands time from you you weren't planning on giving? When someone you're depending on doesn't do their job well and it reflects on your work poorly? It might be that you're reacting that way because you're looking for work to satisfy a deep need and someone's getting in the way and it's like they took away your food. Another question, do you look down on other people in relationship to their work? So if you look at yourself and you say, this is how I know my life is of significance and value, how well my work is going, then you're probably gonna look at other people and evaluate them too. Is their life of value and significance? So do you look at other people and look down on them if you think they're lazy? Do you look down on people who are less successful than you? Or you don't feel like they're as skilled at their job as you are at yours, or they have a less prestigious job? It might be because work's become an idol. Another question, is work affecting your relationships? Uh, Workaholism, it's like any other addiction. The casualty, the primary casualty is your relationships. A great test for this is this. Does your family feel more or less loved depending on whether or not you had a good day or a bad day at work? That your ability to express love to them is hindered by what happens at work. That's how you know you've got a problem. 
Final question. Do you use work as an excuse to not do things you know you should? This is the surest sign that something's become an idol. Because when we have a God, our God tells us what's right and wrong. So if work becomes the thing that makes our decisions for us, when it's the reason you're neglecting things you should do, daily time with God, taking care of your health, looking out for your friends, uh, weekly worship, serving other people, or, or when it becomes the, the excuse for things that you know you shouldn't do. You know, I, I can bend this truth here. I, I, can, I can break this rule over here. I can make this exception because it's going to help with work. Or, or maybe I, I can indulge in this thing that I, I know I probably shouldn't do, but I I've deserve it. I've earned it. I've worked so hard. I need a, I need a release. That, that's when you know it's become your God. Now, if you're having trouble telling if work has become a God for you, one of the best things you can do is actually ask other people what they think about that. As someone who knows you well that you can trust. Uh, Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, while we're usually blind to our own idols, it's not very hard to see them in others and to see how others counterfeit gods fill them with anxiety, anger, and discouragement. Anxiety, anger, and discouragement. That's the result, isn't it? When you look to work to meet your deepest needs, it ruins everything. It ruins your relationships, ruins your health, your character. It even ruins the work itself, doesn't it? Like good work suddenly becomes drudgery. It's not a source of joy and satisfaction. It's a slave driver. But addicts always come to the point where they, eventually they hate their drug, but they still crave it. Someone said that uh, our idols demand more and more and give less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, whenever a love becomes a god, it becomes a demon. Work cannot meet our deepest needs. But there is something that can. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Grace meets our deepest needs. Grace meets our deepest needs. Here's what we mean when we talk about grace. Grace is when you get something that's good and you didn't have to pay for it. You didn't have to earn it. It's a free gift, no charge. In so many ways, grace is the opposite of the way our work lives work. Uh, very appropriately, work operates on the principle of merit. If you contribute, if you work hard, if you produce, you are rewarded. You are compensated for that. that. That's the way it should work in the work world. But when you apply that principle, that, that mode of doing things to other areas of life, it becomes totally toxic. You, you want a surefire way of, uh, to destroy your relationships? Base them on performance. Make people earn your affection. That is a disaster in your relationships. Healthy friendships, healthy families, healthy churches, they are not based on merit. And our relationship with God isn't either. We don't earn God's blessings. We don't have to do things to get that. We don't get God's help because we deserve it. We get it because of grace. That's the whole point here of Elisha's encounter with Naaman. Verse nine says that Naaman shows up with his horses and his chariots and he stops at the door of Elisha's house. Now, this would be like showing up in Air Force One with a full military dress uniform with uh, an honor guard escorting you, and it screams, I'm really, really important. Pay attention to me. That even the fact that he stops outside of Elisha's door is kind of a sign because he's saying, I'm the sort of person that people approach me. I don't seek them out. You, you've got to come to me. I'm that important. Well, Elisha sees that, and he kind of responds in a kind of a snarky way. He sends his own messenger out, and he's sort of saying, you know what? this doesn't rise to the level of something I handle in person. You can talk to my people, okay? It, Naaman's insulted by this. 
And when he hears the instructions, Naaman's ticked. He's just like, you want me to go wash in that little river? Like, I could have, I could have gone back home. There's these great rivers there. I could have done this. You're, you're talking to me. I'm a great man. Ask me to do something impressive here. But what's happening? Everything Elisha's doing is pushing on the assumption that Naaman has that his healing is going to come when he earns it because he deserves it. Elisha is basically saying, look, if you want to be healed, if you want your real needs to be met, you're going to have to give up the idea of earning it. You're, you're going to have to humble yourself to receive grace. Naaman doesn't like this. So he storms off and his servants show up and they, they give, talk some sense into him. They say, look, master, what's it going to hurt to just try, right? Like if he, if he had asked you, climb the highest mountain, or, or build an incredible monument, or gather a, a tremendous treasure, or, or offer a thousand sacrifices, you would have done that, wouldn't you? All he's asking you to do is just go take a bath. So why not try it? It works the same way for us. When, when we want to approach God, a lot of us assume that, that this is the way God works, that if you're good, God blesses you. If you're not, he doesn't. And maybe you grew up in a church where you picked that up. Whether they taught that or not, you, you sort of figured out that this is, this is how God operates. He's sort of the, the God of the cosmic performance review. That if you meet the standards, you hit the goals, then God's going to reward you. And in heaven, it's like the divine paycheck. You've, you've earned it at the end of a hard week of work. But that's actually the opposite of what the Bible teaches. In the book of Romans, chapter 4, Paul actually talks about wages. He says, you know, if someone works, their boss is obligated to pay them wages. So if you get a paycheck, you can hold that up and you can say, look, this is how much I have earned. This is, this is what they owed me for my work. But Paul says, he says, no, our standing before God, our salvation is not a paycheck, it's a present. So imagine doing this at your next birthday party. Someone gives you this amazing, incredible gift that they've, you know, thought really thoughtfully, you, you want this, you need this, and then you open it up and you hold it up and you say, this is what was owed to me. This is what I've earned because of my performance. I deserve this. That would be crazy. You can't hold up a gift and say, look at how much they owe me. You hold it up and say, look at how much they love me. Whatever we get from God, it is a free gift. In verse 15, Naaman goes to Elisha and he offers, he says, I, I want to pay you for this. I want to you know, say thank you with, with something. But Elisha refuses. Think, think about what that would mean. Okay? Naaman had brought millions of dollars worth of riches to Elisha. It would have made Elisha richer than almost anybody in the country, maybe richer than the king. And he refuses it. Why would he do that? Because this is how important this message is. We do not earn God's grace. We do not pay for it. It is free. It is a gift. Well, it's not exactly free. It's free for us, but that doesn't mean it's free. A gift is always free for the one who receives it, but that doesn't mean it's free for the one who gives it. Look at verse 13 again. The, the servants say, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it, right? You know why God doesn't ask us to do some great thing for him to earn our salvation? It's because God has already done some great thing for us to earn our salvation. This is where things get connected to Jesus. It's the whole idea behind the cross and the resurrection. Now, our biggest problem is one that we cannot solve on our own. The, the, the root problem for humanity is something the Bible calls sin. And sin is when we choose to go our way instead of God's way. It's when we say, God, you know what? I, I think I'm going to be all right on my own. I can make the calls here. I can do what I think is best in this situation. 
And we all do it. We do it a hundred times a day, don't we? And you might look at that and say, well, what's, what's so bad about that? Well, what's bad about it is when we say to God, hey, I'm gonna do things on my own. God says, okay, you can have a life on your own apart from me. But, but who is God? God is the, the source of all life and goodness and beauty and joy. He's the source of all love. And so when we walk away from him, that, that's the reason all of us have hungry hearts. We're, we're separated from the source of everything that satisfies. The, the God who meets our deepest needs, we've walked away from him. And that's the reason we're restless. It's also the reason we die. If God's the source of life, the natural consequence of walking away from him is death. It's spiritual death right now. Physical death eventually. And if nothing's done about it, eternal death in the life to come. That, that's a serious problem. It's a problem no amount of effort on our part can ever fix, which is why God himself showed up to fix it. We've already looked at this passage earlier in the service, but I want to read it again. In Romans chapter five, it says this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the great thing that pays for our salvation. Jesus took on the consequences of our sin. He said, whatever they owe, I'm gonna pay it. It's sort of like a man with an incredible amount of debt who marries a woman with incredible wealth. And as soon as they say, I do, his debt becomes hers and her wealth becomes his. Jesus, that's what he did. He said, I'm gonna take the death that they deserve and I'm gonna die it. And I'm gonna give them the life that I deserve so that they can live it. This is grace, that while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That this is how our deepest needs are met. Not through our work, but through his work. And here's the even better news, that all he asks us to do to receive that is to humble ourselves, to t accept it as a gift, just like Naaman did. You ever done that? You ever said to God, look, I can't save myself. I need you. I need you to rescue me. I can't do it on my own anymore. You need to be the one who saves me and who runs my life. The, the easiest way to do that is to simply pray, to talk to God and say, hey, I, I wanna surrender to you. I, I need you. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? I want you to think about that because in a few minutes, I'm gonna close in prayer and I'm gonna give you a chance to do that today. To say, God, I need that gift of grace in my life. This is the only way your deepest needs can be met. Once you do that, though, something starts to happen. And this is the final thing I want to show you. Once you experience grace, grace transforms why you work. Transforms why you work. Think about it. What happens when your hungry heart starts getting a steady diet of God's grace? You, you used to go to work so that you would feel secure, but now Christ has secured your future for you. Nothing can shake it. You used to go to your work to get acceptance and the praise of other people, but now you have the love and the acclaim of God himself. What could be greater? You used to work so that you felt significant and important, but now you've been adopted into the family of God. You, you are an heir of heaven. You are a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, what could be more significant than that? Suddenly, you don't need your work to meet those deepest needs. They're already met. And that's incredibly freeing, incredibly freeing. You are not depending on your work to fulfill your needs. You don't have to be a slave to your work anymore. 
Your work gets demoted from being your captor to being your calling. It gets to be the good thing that God designed it to be. It's, it's wonderful. But it raises the question, okay, if I'm not working to meet my deepest needs, what's my motivation? Why do I work? Work is now done not out of neediness, but out of love. This is what Colossians 3 says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for a human master. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. That work becomes a way of fulfilling the greatest commandment to, to love God and the second greatest commandment to love other people. But we're gonna talk a lot more about that next week. But even this, it, it raises another question. Most of us, we work in environments where this isn't exactly the motivation that people have for their work, that they aren't doing it as an act of worship and love for God. So the question is, how do we work in an environment where that's our motive, even if it's not the motive or value of other people around us? It's really interesting to see how Naaman prepares to go home, to resume his work in the government uh, there. Look at verse 17 again. After Elisha refused to take payment, this is how Naaman responds. He says, if if you're not going to take payment, Naaman says, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Naaman's going to go back to Aram, and he's going to be a worshiper of the God of Israel. And he's going to be the only one there, except for that little servant girl. It's just going to be the two of them. They're going to be a little island in a sea of idolatry. And you got to remember that in those days, if you worked in the government, there was no separation of church and state. Your work was bound up with the worship of the national gods. So Naaman is trying to figure out, how do I go back into that world? And here's the fascinating thing. He doesn't say, you know what? I think the decision is I should just stay in Israel with other people who worship this God. That's not what God calls most of us to do. A small number of us are called to work for Christian organizations, but the vast majority of Christ followers work for and with non-Christians. That's a really good thing. That is what God asks us to do. The Bible is full of people who are doing this. Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Esther and Nehemiah. They all worked for and with people who did not share their faith. So how do you do that? Because there's dangers on both sides of this. There's on the one side, the danger of separation. that You just get caught up in your own Christian bubble and that you only interact with other people who think like you. Or the other side is assimilation where you're with a whole bunch of people who believe different from you, but you're not actually different from any of them. Your faith changes nothing about how and why you do your work. So how do you remain distinct, but not separate? This is a big question. I can't give you a complete answer from this text, but there are four things that Naaman does here that I think would be really good for us to imitate in this regard. Here's the first thing. We need to draw lines. We need to draw some lines. Look at the commitment that Naaman makes in verse 17. He says, I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. It's a very clear line. Offerings and sacrifices are a part of his work life in the government. And he draws the line. He says, I'm not gonna do those things anymore. But we've got to identify places where we say, I cannot go there in our workplaces. Now, there are some obvious lines that'll be really easy to draw. We say, I'm gonna be honest in my work. I'm not gonna lie or deceive. I'm not gonna cheat or steal. I'm not going to discriminate against people because of their their race or their gender. I'm not going to overlook harassment or or cover up criminal activity. Those are lines I cannot cross. 
But there are other lines that are going to take a little bit more thinking, a little bit more discernment to figure out. You got to ask the hard question about your workplace. What are the values in my work or in my industry that, that run contrary to the gospel? Are there things that people are pursuing here that I no longer pursue because I've been set free by God's grace? What are are the gods that are worshiped in this place that I no longer give allegiance to? It's going to look different in every job, every career. But if you don't do the work to identify those lines, you are probably going to cross them. Here's the second thing that Naaman does that we should also do. He sets disciplines. He sets disciplines. What I mean by this is that you need to have specific activities that you regularly do to keep focused on Jesus, the one you're worshiping through your work. Look at verse 17 again. Naaman requests, as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. Now that is really weird. Like, he's like, okay, Elisha, I'm gonna pay you millions of dollars? Oh, you're refusing? Okay, my, my second request is, can I have a pile of dirt? Oh, it's like, what, what does he want with this? This is what Naaman's doing. He is bringing back a symbol. In those days, you associated gods with the, the nation that they ruled over. So this would have been meaningful for Naaman, even if there was a little bit of confusion on how things worked. He was bringing a symbol that he understood. He, he says, I'm going to bring home enough soil to build an altar on it to the God of Israel. He, he's saying, this is the place where I met God. This turf, this land is where God rescued me. This is the land where God dwells in his temple. And I'm going to use this as a reminder of the God that I worship. You and me, we've got to have the same sorts of things tangible reminders, little disciplines, little symbols in our workplaces to keep us focused on the God who rescued us, who meets our needs. What does that look like for you? For lots of different things from people. It might be having a a short prayer routine that you do in the car before you get out uh, to go into your work. Or maybe you use one of your breaks each day to read a passage of scripture and, and refocus on what you're doing. Or you got some kind of symbol on your desk that reminds you of your values, your priorities, of who you're serving. Maybe it's a practice of walking through your workplace and praying for your coworkers as you pass their offices. I've heard of people doing all sorts of stuff, but the point is not to be weird, not to be obnoxious to your coworkers about it, but to do things that remind you of why you worship, to keep your heart focused on the God who meets your deepest needs so that you're not seduced by the things other people are chasing. Here's the third thing Naaman does that we should do. We need to feel the tension we need to feel the tension. As Naaman's thinking through what his duties are going to be when he goes home, he remembers, he says, you know, one of the things I have to do is there are some kind of court ceremonies that happen in the temple of the god Rimen. And Rimen is a less common name for the god Baal. He says, this is part of the civic duties. I've already drawn the line that I'm not going to offer sacrifices or offerings to any other gods, but things happen that are kind of the business of the state in these places. And in verse 18, he, he says, look, I, I'm going to have to actually walk with the king. And I kind of hold him up because he's an old man. And he's going to bow down before this idol. And I'm going to have to kind of, you know, lean over as he does that. And that sort of looks like worship. And, and he's saying, can I kind of get a pardon in advance for having to do that? Now, commentators, they read this and they're kind of divided on how to think about this. There's some people who say, you know what? This is a compromise that should not have been made. Elisha should not have given permission for this. It might be an okay first step, but eventually Naaman's going to have to realize this is not okay and draw the line there and maybe put his job on the line or even his life on the line for this. Other commentators say, you know what? This is actually a pretty creative solution. It makes it possible for there to be a follower of the Lord in a very dark place. It's obviously not ideal, but this is better than having no one present who believed in the one true God. 
And I'll be honest, I, I wrestle with this. I'm not sure exactly how to take this. Now, I talked with a, a number of people about this. Just uh, on Tuesday evening, I was hanging out with some friends where we get together and we play strategy games. And uh, we were sitting there and I'm sitting with a software developer for a, a big trading firm, uh, a sales guy for a robotics company, and someone who works for an insurance company. And the, the four of us are talking, okay, what would this look like in, in your line of work? And all, we, we wrestled, we talked for, it, it was a lot later than we probably should have been debating all this stuff. And it, we're, we're talking about it and we're saying, okay, we see that there are messy situations. It, when we work with people who don't believe or value the same things we do, we all recognize that. And there are lots of times when you're gonna be present for things that, that people are deciding or doing that you say, I don't think that's what we should be doing. There are even gonna be times when your good, honest, godly work gets used by someone else to pursue something that you say, this is not a value, this is, this is not right. What we couldn't figure out as we wrestled was what this verse gives us permission to do. Because we felt that tension, we don't want this to be an excuse to not stand up for what's right or to suddenly be comfortable with the false values that people are pursuing around us. But what we saw is this, at a minimum, we, we have to feel the tension that's there because there is a tension. We cannot go through our life and just say, oh, there's no conflicts here in value. Even Naaman, he's just not okay with the situation. He feels conflicted. It's the reason he asked for a pardon, for forgiveness. Because he knows, I'm not always gonna know how to figure this out. I might not always make the right decision in the situation. So he pleads for God's mercy as he figures it out. This is the reason we need to do the final thing that Naaman does, because we can't always figure it out. So we need to seek wise people. Naaman doesn't just say, okay, here's what I think is a good idea. He actually runs it by a godly wise person, Elisha. Do, do you have people like that in your life? Do you, do you have a, a fellow Christ followers who work in a similar line of work and you can connect with and say, how do we actually live as Christians in this field? Have you ever looked online? There, there are lots of people who are writing articles from different industries, different areas of work who are saying, this is how we integrate our faith uh, into our workplace. Do you ever bring up challenges like this in your community group? The, the people that you're, you're, you're digging into your spiritual life, do you ever say, let me talk to you about my work life? The, the things I think God's doing here, the challenges I'm facing, the dilemmas that I'm, I'm pondering. What, what might God be doing? What, how should I respond? Without people around us to process these things, we are going to fall into the default modes of thinking that everybody around us has. We need wise people to keep us focused. We're gonna close in just a minute here. Uh, we're, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a final song. We're going to receive our gifts and our offerings as an act of worship to the God who loves us. But before I do that, I kind of want to circle back to something. I want to circle back to those of you who've been hearing me talk about God's grace in Jesus. And you say, you know, I've never surrendered to that. I've never actually made that decision to say, God, I need you. Rescue me. Save me. And you know you need God to meet your deepest needs. You don't want to look anywhere else. You want to go directly to the source. So I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to pray my closing prayer here is a prayer that you can pray along with. It's a simple prayer. It's going to go like this. I'm going to say, I'm sorry for the things that we've done, the sins that we've committed. I'm going to say thank you for the things that God has done, the way he sent Jesus to die and to rise again. And we're going to say please and ask God to forgive us and transform us and come into our life. It's a simple way. If you've never done that, make today the day when you surrender to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I want to say sorry for my sin. 
God, I, I know that I have looked in all sorts of different places to have my deepest needs met, but you are the one that I need to go to. And I've been running from you and I don't want to anymore. God, I've done things that are wrong, that I regret, that I'm guilty and ashamed of. And I need you to forgive me. I'm sorry, God. And God, I say thank you. It's something incredible that you did. God, you sent your son to save us. Jesus, you are amazing. Your death was for my sin. Your resurrection was so that I could have life. You are the one who's the savior and the king. Thank you so much for rescuing me. And we say, please, God, please, I, I need your forgiveness. I need you to cleanse me of my sin. God, God I need you to set me free from the things that dominate my life, the things that are wrong. God, I need you to welcome me into your family. I wanna be a part of your people. And God, please, I need a future. I need to know I've got a hope in heaven with you. God, please give me these things. I know they're a gift I could never earn. I need them by your grace. God, I pray for those who just prayed that prayer, who just surrendered their lives to you and said, this is it, I need you, God. God, thank you, thank you for rescuing them. Thank you for saving them. God, I pray that this first step in their walk with you would become a lifelong journey with you. That from here on out, that their life would be lived with you present with them. That they would grow and learn and become the person you want them to be. God, thank you for the hope and the future that you've just given them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.